You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today is Jeff Franke, and Anna is back this week. Yay! How's it going? <laughs> Good. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five biggest stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the manufacturing industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, subscribe to the podcast. You can also do, do us a big favor by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach us at David, Anna, or Jeff at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. I've been here every week. Yeah, but you're I've known also you in the same spot. <laughs> this is, I mean, uh, uh, loyal listener Doug reached out to me and said, I think the only reason you didn't have a stumble was because Anna wasn't there. And that just proved true so fast. <laughs> anyway, uh, you could also do us a favor by subscribing to the newsletters if you want to make sure that you get the podcast in your inbox first. How are you doing today, Jeff? Good. I'm, I'm glad that Anna not only is back, but that she made it through unscathed. Those mm-hmm. family vacations, mm-hmm. it, you know, it can be a little tricky. So especially with the three little ones. So Yeah, there to- is a lot of sand being thrown. Um, stop throwing sand. I mean, Can is I it finish a cup of coffee? <laughs> stop it, throwing sand. Are you at the point still where you just understand you're always going to have sand in your house now? <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, let's get rolling. Our first story this week, U.S. orders water recall after illness and death. In March, we talked about the company Real Water that issued a bottled water recall after reports of acute non-viral hepatitis, a liver illness in kids. Last week, federal authorities ordered a complete recall and ordered the Las Vegas-based company to surrender records to investigate at least one death of a woman in her 60s. The order stops production and distribution and requires the company to recall and destroy all the product produced before May 26th. To turn, over the F- <clears throat> to turn over to the FDA records about processing, bottling, and distribution, and to submit to unannounced inspections of company facilities. The product is sold as premium alkalized drinking water infused with negative ions and offers healthy detoxifying properties. The federal civil complaint says the product is treated with chemicals including caustic lye and a mineral salt. The company's website is down except for a statement by the president, Brent Jones, and the company's phones are no longer in service. Anna, the company kind of went dark. Yeah, this is premium water. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it, so it was way back in March that Real Water issued what they called a precautionary recall of this product. Um, uh, illnesses were being reported at that time. Uh, the FDA cautioned consumers not to drink it, not to use it. Um, so I was surprised to see this recall because I thought, foolishly that this water was no longer available. But looking back a few weeks, it appears that real water was still actually like available commercially via some online retailers. And according to an investigation by the FDA, the company had actually not informed all of its online retailers of the recall, which sort of forced the feds to step in with their own nationwide recall here. But meanwhile, you know, more illnesses, one death potentially that's being pinned on real water. Um, I don't know. It's pretty sickening to think that a company can voluntarily recall a product and then continue to distribute it while people continue to get sick. And frankly, for a company that, like, without question is going to face numerous lawsuits, like, why? Yeah. This, yeah. this demonstrates, like, I think pretty willful disregard for health and safety. And I don't think it's going to help them in defending themselves against these lawsuits that are already 
being filed were being filed months ago. Did they do anything to discuss why they didn't inform their distributors? I don't know. That, yeah. that I could not find. Yeah. So, An administrative error. No. Right, yeah. Uh, Jeff, this seems pretty egregious. It does, and you wonder at what point, and I'm sure there's a lot of different legal protections here, that this doesn't almost become criminal. Because when you talk about lie, I mean, I'm familiar, that with, familiar with that from agricultural applications where you put that into the soil, yes, to help it become less acidic, but you can also essentially poison the soil or the, any plants that come in touch with it. Lye is a very dangerous chemical. I mean, it can be very helpful, but also very got to be very careful with it. So to see that that was actually found in the water is scary. This whole process, the alkalining of water, mm-hmm. um, it's something I was kind of oblivious to, to be honest. I've never looked at this. I've heard of these, these water products before. But understanding that they're essentially taking municipal water, throwing it through this magical piece of equipment to lower the acidic levels of it that makes it different, unique, special, potentially more healthy – um, Magic. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, it's kind Add of... Add a bunch of chemicals to it to make yeah. it more healthy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and it's... So the company uses a proprietary ionizer to apply an electrical current and create positively charged and negatively charged solutions. So I guess whenever I see that kind of jargon on a bottle, I just think it's BS. I don't ever think it's going to poison me. Mm-hmm. Um just because, you know, it is still something that is regulated by the FDA. Um, you know, I think that you should have a minimal expectation that these products are safe enough and won't kill you. Um, but when I see it, my snake oil sensor goes off. Yeah. It's just like, hey, okay, this is high price because it's alkalized. But the one thing to remember, and the last thing that I could find, last dollar figure I could find in terms of market value was from 2017. And at that point, this was a $630 million industry just in the U.S. Mm-hmm. for this ionized alkaline water. So... There's a part of me that also wonders, because this is such a detrimental story, I mean, just what this company did, Mm -hmm. as Anna alluded to, essentially being oblivious to the potential negative elements that could come out of this process, what is it going to do to this industry, potentially? Because you do have some people who are doing it right. Mm -hmm. Is this going to kind of, um, you know, bind them all together? Maybe the company knew, maybe he just knew he was sunk. And it's like, I got to move as much of this as I can. Yeah, I I mean, that's really the only explanation, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not that uh, he had the best intentions. Um, yeah. So because it made me think of snake oil, I had to look it up. Did you know that the original snake oil was actually beneficial? So it was tied, it was tied to Chinese railway labor, uh, laborers, and it was packed with omega-3s. They would use it to help treat, like, uh, arthritis and bursitis. Is it actually snake oil? Yeah, it was actually oil derived from snakes, and they would use it... Uh, However, topically, I believe. But, of course, mm-hmm. you know, like any good product, uh, in 1916, Clark Stanley, also known as the Rattlesnake King. Yeah. <laughs> I'm he's a professional calling, wrestler. Yes. I'm start calling you the Rattlesnake King. <laughs> Actually, well, he's either Cobra. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, Clark sold snake oil liniment, which was mostly mineral oil, and he was prosecuted, pleaded no contest, and uh, with no admission of guilt, and was fined $20. This was before there was even the FDA, which is, you know, the equivalent of $476 today. So dating back to the first scam, yeah, they didn't have to pay anything. Wow. <laughs> so also, if there's a book on the Rattlesnake King that anyone can recommend. Snake I'm oil in. wasn't, like, poisonous, though. They were just... It just didn't work. Yeah. yeah, no. So that was, you know, he got prosecuted for fraud because it was just mineral oil yeah. 
with a new wrapper. It was alkalized snake oil. <laughs> <laughs> um, very good. The fourth most popular on the website this week, Factory Boss Defiant is sanctions bite in China's Xinjiang region. Reports of forced labor and other abuses of the largely Muslim Uyghur ethnic group in Xinjiang, China, is taking a toll on its cotton industry. But will the pressure compel the government or companies to change their ways? <clears throat> Li Chiang is the general manager of the Huafuch Fashion Yarn Factory. He said that while the company lost money in 2020 for the first time in its 27-year history, it bounced back by shifting to domestic orders. Lee blamed a sharp fall in foreign orders as customers like Adidas and H&M cut ties. And fake, he blamed it on fake news in the 2019 Wall Street Journal story. The company also cited U.S. sanctions and the coronavirus pandemic for the losses. And I feel like this is more than fake news. <laughs> I appreciate that the term fake news is now globally relevant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. This story has implications, I think, as it brings to light some of the humanitarian issues that are part and parcel with some of the industries and supply chains that have all but vacated the U.S., um, in order to keep costs down, and textiles is, of course, one of them. Um, you know, the exploitation of this, uh, how do you say, Uyghur? Is that how Uyghur, you say? Yeah. Um, this ethnic group in China has been well documented. Um, and that's like, it, it's a terrible situation over there, but I think, let's be real, like, it doesn't take a week or two to pass before another story in another region. Uh, shines a light on some of the atrocities and exploitation that's happening uh, to textile workers and other workers in, in all kinds of countries. And, um, you know, as an example, you know, the actress Kate Hudson, her mm -hmm. mom is Goldie I'm Hawn. Yeah. I'm familiar. Yes. Um, <laughs> creepy. It's all right. I'm familiar. Yes. Um, <laughs> that must be better. The bad thing is she knows David, too. So <laughs> that's right. what we have yeah. to be worried Yeah, we can no longer communicate. Uh, anyway, she is having to answer to some allegations that her factories um, are, like the, the factories producing her line of athletic wear, oh. um, are abusing their workers. Oh, wow. And she has been always, you know, like front and center, like we empower women, blah, blah, blah. Like yeah. this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not trying to underplay or play down what's happening here specifically because it's an atrocity. Mm -hmm. I guess what my can. My conclusion is, is just that, you know, we continue to expect ultra cheap clothing here in the United States. We've covered this recently, yeah. that people aren't willing to pay more for Buy American, even though we talk about it. Um, you see companies try to play the textile game here, and it's really, really difficult mm -hmm. to do so cost effectively and compete against these other um, supply chains. So if Americans are simply unwilling to pay more for mm -hmm. these products to sort of shorten these supply chains, then I just, you feel like you're kind of just playing whack-a-mole with these scenarios. You know, H&M and Nike, they walk away. Mm -hmm. Where are they setting up next? What's yeah. next? You know, I just don't feel like maybe progress is necessarily being made because something becomes very public. Yeah. And then they feel like they need to walk away from that, that region. Yeah, they have to make a PR pivot. Right. All you need is two black shirts that you wear into the ground for a decade. That's all you need. Um, Jeff, what I was frustrated with is how I see terms like coerced and forced labor, and we don't say slavery. Yeah. Um, the, the, the issues surrounding everything that's going on with that ethnic group in China has been documented, and Anna spoke to it very, very eloquently. Mm -hmm. So 
all of those things are difficult to comprehend, especially in this day and age where that just it's, it's just hard to even understand how somebody there could be a class structure like that in place that's universally everybody's just okay with it. Mm-hmm. Right. They just they just embrace and say this is what it is. It's it's hard for us to really fathom and understand. I think in addition to that, and it's good that more of this is coming to light and there are some of these companies who are taking a stand. The reality is though, we don't know what, what's going on in Indonesia. We don't know what's going on in Vietnam and some of these other places that that's where they're moving to. They're not mm-hmm. moving to North Carolina. Okay. That's where they're moving their facilities to. We don't know what the conditions are like there. Maybe we'll find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly hope it's not some of the things we hear. In particular, it seems like it's always Bangladesh and India and some of these textile production. They're not even factories there. I mean, the last one we covered was the, a two-story yeah, apartment building. Or yeah, something. The, yeah. The ghost factories. Ghost factories, yeah. yeah. So there's that. The one thing that I did think was interesting is for a Chinese company to be this transparent in terms of some of their losses. They did say they lost over $60 million last year. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that they were talking about that. They were also saying they made almost $20 million in the first quarter, so things are coming back. A while ago, when we talked about some of the reshoring that was coming back to the U.S., it was textiles, but it was furniture mm-hmm. because there was such an issue with supply in terms of getting furniture that was made overseas here on time. It's been compounded lately with the, uh, with the pandemic. But when it comes to clothes, yeah, it's just not cost-effective to make a lot of that here. Yeah. When you look at all the cotton stuff that this particular place is putting out, and it's mainly being used for clothing, um, uh, bed sheets, towels, things like that, yeah, th- there aren't. It's tough, and it's not just the U.S. It's also other more developed or larger economies in Europe and, and every place else where most of this stuff is coming from is this pocket in Asia where they can find less expensive labor. And for a company that's putting out that much stuff to show profits trending towards over, well, what we're looking at the first quarter. So they're looking at, you know, $80 million in potential profit this year. Um, yeah, it's a head-scratcher a little bit. And I know there's been a lot of movements towards, like what Anna was talking about, about buying stuff that costs more because it lasts longer, and then you're not going through this vicious cycle of getting rid of clothing and recycling and all that. That's, I think, where this can really be addressed most potentially, more, more powerfully, mm-hmm. is that people can kind of grab onto that and go that route and, and fulfill that. I don't know how you – there's no way to legislate that or enforce it or anything. Mm-hmm. No, I feel like that's – production a, caps on or something. But. Well, I mean, that's like a slippery slope to, you know, yeah. uniforms. <laughs> Everyone will wear their Monday coverall today. Cover. Uh, uh, the one thing that I that bugged me was uh, uh, they had a very nationalistic tone in all of their comments mm-hmm. that they're going to rely on the domestic supply chain, and I just don't think that that's what the world needs right now is more nationalism tones. Uh, I also wanted to point out that the U.S. didn't just ban cotton and clothing; they also banned hair products, tomato products, and computer parts. And I just seemed like that was a seemed like that was a weird mix. You know what though? The I don't know, I can't speak to the other two, but we ran a story maybe six, eight months ago about how there was some hair extensions that were being sold in the US that were produced there. Mm-hmm. And they believe that the hair was human hair that was, came from prisoners. Yeah, yeah. Uh from the Uyghur. Yeah. yeah. Um that is troubling. Really? Yeah. Um, and they're still, they still supply one-fifth of the world's cotton. So, I mean, a lot has got to change for the world not to be so dependent on this, reg- on this region. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third most popular story this week, a ship fire rages for the sixth day. Crews from Europe and Sri Lanka battled a fire on board a container ship for more than a week. The chemical fire aboard the MV Express Pearl has caused a large number of containers to tumble into the sea. So... Salvagers, prepare your fleets once the ash settles. 
The ship is operated by Express Feeders, which is working with local authorities to try and save the vessel and its cargo. The ship was carrying about 1,500 containers, including 25 tons of nitric acid and other chemicals that were loaded at a port in India on May 15th. Fighting the blaze has been particularly difficult because of adverse weather due to impending monsoons. The crew members were evacuated, two are in the hospital, and the others are in quarantine. Jeff, you escape a blazing ship, and you get locked in quarantine. That is a bad situation all around. Well, I think this is going to be a continuing story. This yeah. is going to be a bigger story than, than even right now, because as we're recording, um, this, this thing is still burning. Yeah. Okay. And what... I think the interesting part of this, too, is the backstory is, according to the BBC, there was two other ports that would not allow this ship in because it was leaking. One of them was actually even in India, which, let's be real, does not have real high environmental standards. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they even said, no, Sri Lanka let this, you know, this ship come in, and as a result, as it got closer, bad things happened. Mm-hmm. And now they're seeing a lot of this plastic that has fallen off or melted off the boat it's washing up on shore mm. it's in the area they had to keep fishermen away from the area so it tells you this was this wasn't just you know a dead spot in the ocean i mean there was also activity mm-hmm. here other than just shipping mm-hmm. um i think this is going to be huge because if this thing burns down and if it does actually sink mm-hmm. these containers of these horrible chemicals that are in here horrible in that they're not supposed to be just you know left out in the middle of the ocean right um yeah, I, I think this has the potential to be an ongoing issue. I mean, like ecological disaster, just just yeah, in horrible proportions. I don't know about you, Anna, but ever since we started doing this, it feels like we have some sort of shipping industry disaster every week. And I will admit, until we started doing this, I was very ignorant to it. We would cover them all the time, and I just it didn't sink in that this is happening every week. Is this sink? In. You just got a cold sell it, man. Okay. You got to okay. play cold. Oh, okay. okay. Well, we, we right. didn't Don't drop an anchor on the podcast, Jeff. Sad. That was bad. Sad. That was bad. We're just going to wash We're over just that gonna one. We're just going to troll right past that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's getting choppy out here, guys. Um, anyway, Anna, is it just the pen? Is it symptomatic of the time, or has this been happening longer than I'm you know, realizing? Well, it's possible. I mean, I don't know. I think that it's possible that people are more... Uh, dialed into supply chain issues because we've seen so many shortages. It's possible, too. I think this came up in one of our recent podcasts that that maybe uh, people are moving double time and take, mm-hmm. cutting some corners and trying to get this stuff you know moved as fast as possible. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do recall that we covered a story in October about another serious fire on a ship that was also off the coast of Sri Lanka, and that was carrying 2 million barrels of crude oil. Wow. Right. And, like, this ship, there's potential for an oil leak, they said. Yeah. Like, b- besides the nitric acid, you know, all the horrible caustic chemicals that are just sitting there waiting to fall into the ocean. And it seems like that's what they're more focused on. Is really, the oil. Is the oil. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because there's maybe more money attached to that load as opposed to these other chemicals in terms of what they can, I don't know. But Yeah, sorry. I don't know. Or is it easier to, to, you know, extract a container than it is to pull oil out of yeah. the water or less expensive yeah. maybe? I don't know. But... Either way, I think these points kind of just, you know, they they speak to the impact of climate change. You know, we talked about how, like, extreme weather and high winds and monsoons, like, this is contributing to not being able to put this fire out. Right. In the case of the ship in October, 
um, it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. Basically, like the fire was put out and then like two days later it reignited, they said, because of the high winds. And it actually reached like the proportions that it was at previously, uh, the worst of it Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. They had to put it out again. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just think like it's exacerbating these existing problems. Um, And... They're just, you know, like precursors to pollution disasters. Mm-hmm. And they're almost, it's almost like two heads from the same neck, you know. It's like these two catastrophic problems that are coming from our inability to manage <laughs> uh, the earth. Well, I, I, th- I think, I mean, this was just the most popular shipping disaster or disaster at sea this week because there was another one where inclement weather sank another boat, right? We've, yeah, I mean, recently we had that one of those those folks down in the Gulf, mm-hmm. bad wind tipped over the, it's kind of a rigging platform type of boat, horrible, mm-hmm. horrible situation. Um, I think it was, I think it was, was like a dozen people passed um, mm-hmm. uh, with that one. So yeah, and I do think it is because there is so much more pressure right now to get things done. We're, we're reopening, there's a demand for so much more product and more industrial activity. People want to get out there and do their jobs, and, and maybe some of these safety protocols just aren't being paid attention to it to the same extent that they were before and that they obviously need to be. I mean, some of it has to be the weather, right? Some of it has to be. Or is it yeah. just, you know, but or to, just not paying attention to it? Yeah, yeah, or to Jeff's point, like weather that you wouldn't normally go, go out in. I oh. mean, that was the situation with the Gulf yeah. ship that capsized. Like that was weather that they said normally they wouldn't expect a ship to go out and they did that one was really spooky because that individual one of the guys who who was missing actually called his i believe his wife or his girlfriend before then said like i don't want to do this Mm -hmm. oh man they did not have a choice yeah um so yeah it's it's very it's very disconcerting yeah to hear some of these things uh moving on to our next story with an equally grim tone uh no not necessarily uh But Tesla, because it's our podcast and we have to talk about the company, Tesla was fined for limiting battery range. A court in Norway found Tesla guilty of throttling charging speeds and battery capacity. As a result, the company is ordered to pay 30 plaintiffs $16,000 each. After a routine over-the-air software update two years ago, drivers lost from 12 to 30 miles per charge and experienced slower charging at supercharger fast charging stations. That's a lot of charging. Tesla said the update protected vehicle batteries and improved their longevity, and that only a small number of vehicles were impacted. The company can appeal the decision, but just in Norway, there are 10,000 Tesla owners, and more suits are coming, including class action filings in California. Jeff, Tesla is just having a bad day again. (laughs) What is the company culture like at this place? <clears throat> you know, know, we've heard some stuff on the plant floor, and I think that's different from sort of the the upper management, if you will. Because mm-hmm. what is it like? Do they do stuff, and they're just like, you know what? We're just going to tell them. We're just, mm-hmm. This is just what we're going to do. Because in my understanding, these software upgrades, these over-the-air updates, you don't have to accept them. I mean, this is the same thing as like with your cell phones. You get When you get the update, you just do it because you get the annoying message all the time and, and everything else. But in this instance, if I think if they could have done something where they said, look, you guys got an option. Mm-hmm. When you send this out, mm-hmm. this is either going to make your battery last longer, which was what their focus was on this. It wasn't malicious intent to, to somehow, you know, negatively impact performance of their vehicle. It was to preserve the battery life, which is the most expensive part of it to ever replace when you're talking about an electric car. Why don't they just give them the option? Say, hey, you can take <laughs> yeah. this and say, look, you're, you're going to sacrifice range, but you're going to get more life, 
or mm-hmm. you take the upgrade. Yeah. I mean, just Cl- clarity. What, right? Why is this hard? Or more of a heads up. It just made me feel the think about every software vendor we have ever dealt with. And you know, the example about the phone is a good one because I always do that update because I expect them to, you know, keep my phone operational and protected mm-hmm. and secure. But on a business perspective, we have software that we use for content management systems and other things in the company. And whenever they roll out an update, we just hit refresh. The update is there. Things have changed. And we don't know what the hell is going on. You know, it changes our regular operating uh, procedures every morning. Not every morning, but like for the morning. And it is very frustrating. So I think that something like this is just ha- has to be much more clearly communicated. Uh, hey, we're going to run this update. It's going to improve your battery overall, but you're going to lose a little bit of range. And I think people would be more on board with that if they didn't just run the update and then let people figure it out for themselves, (laughs) you know? Well, yeah, because like the problem now is like if you so look at our website, like I think Mm -hmm. the commenters were kind of divided on whether they thought this was a deliberate strategy by Tesla to get customers to trade up kind of like what Apple was accused of for like slowing down their devices, their older devices. Or if Tesla was just failing to communicate well, as they have done in the past. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, as you guys said, that's not their strong suit. And I think they're known for being kind of brash and overconfident with what they're working on and rolling out. Almost like they don't owe anyone an explanation, which they do. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting to see another Tesla story break just this morning mm-hmm. about how two consumer safety organizations, IIHS and um, Consumer Reports, basically pulled their safety recommendations for Teslas, um, a couple models of Teslas, because Tesla pulled the radars that guide those uh, safety systems, and they're going to use cameras instead. Mm -hmm. Um, But those agencies don't consider that to be adequate um, within their guidelines or whatever. But Someone did something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, does Tesla not care about that? Like, did they not bother to check? It's just strange. It's strange PR, like, to let that happen. I mean, you know... There's something to be said, I think, about due diligence and not just like going rogue and like letting the shrapnel fly like <laughs> Tesla seems to do all the time. I don't. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that always gets me with this stuff too is these are these are enthusiasts. Like this is the equivalent of like an owner's group essentially. If you buy a Tesla, the man they're on board. They mm-hmm. just they want to drink the Kool Aid. They love them so bad. Yeah. And Tesla's just like no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. We're not going to let you get too excited yeah, about we're, this. It's like someone knocks on your door and they're like, we're here to remove your tires. Yeah. Well, I don't, uh, I don't, I mean, the theories about planned obsolescence, I would believe that more if they weren't already struggling to keep up with demand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like that'd be a real early play. Like, <laughs> we got to start cashing them out. Man, yeah. we're still like millions behind. Yeah. Let's fire up that wait list. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, hey, no one saw this feature going out. Yeah. We are way behind our timelines. Like, put it back. Uh, no, I understand why there's, there's a lot of disgruntled people. It's like we were talking about the uh, with the roof, the solar roof, uh-huh. where yeah. everybody, like you said, everyone's just trying to do the right thing. Just give us a heads up. Yeah. And it's, I understand the frustration. All right, our most popular story this week. Supersonic jet maker abruptly shuts down. Arion Supersonic was an ambitious plane maker. Backed by Boeing, the company wanted to create boomless supersonic passenger jets by the mid-2020s. And then... They closed, likely because they were out of money. The company said, quote, the current financial environment has proven hugely challenging to close on the scheduled and necessarily or necessary large new capital requirements. The company said it had $11 billion in a sales backlog. 
Anna, what happened? I don't know. I mean, I I have to say I was surprised by this, and that's because this company wasn't just quietly fading into the shadows. They were actively promoting their product developments as recently as um, April, and in mm-hmm. a very public way, right? right? But with hindsight being 2020, now I kind of wonder, like, was this a desperate Hail Mary to generate some publicity and kind of help with their funding goals? Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the business impacts of the pandemic that people didn't really talk about a whole lot um, as we were focusing on, like, Fortune 500s and the impact on existing businesses is that the recession really dried up a lot of venture capital streams for startups. Okay. And, you know, that environment became much more challenging for them. So if you look at a company like Arian who is looking for like, you know, a potential rebound for the air travel industry in the somewhat near future. They're probably still fighting uphill after a year of pandemic. Um, And you consider that nine out of 10 startups fail anyway. Mm. Why would it be a plane maker whose product and development costs are insanely high? And, you know, they're sitting in a recessionary climate facing down this industry that's like not even close to battled back. Um, I mean, it's not a good set of variables. So I rescind my original point of being surprised. And now that I think about it in more detail, I guess I should not have been surprised. Just scale back, right? Just, all right, we're just going to work on the third size models for now. You know, we're just going to do strict R&D. I don't know. They um, said $4 billion was yeah. going into building that plane. Yeah. And and that's not production costs, I don't mm-hmm. think. That's just R&D. Yeah, and like yeah. that is a lot of venture capital. Well, and I guess if you're backed by Boeing, it's not a good time right now to be backed by Boeing. Well, yeah. I mean, let's be real. They're, they've got some other stuff to deal with. Yeah. So, But I think the reason that it was surprising was just the numbers that they were throwing out. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about $4 billion in product development costs. They were talking about a $375 million facility they were going to mm-hmm. build in Orlando. And just as recently as I think it was February, they had like a $320 million or $300 million public offering that they were going to do to raise funds. So... In going through some of this, it actually reminded me, and I know you've watched it. I don't know if you have, Anna, um, that that documentary on John DeLorean. Oh, yeah. Where he had these huge grand plans, Mm. except he didn't have the money to do them. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously he he took a more nefarious route in trying to raise those monies, but... But yeah, very similar. And I think, you know, to your point, Anna, too, about public or excuse me, about um, private investment funds drying up. Um, GE is the other big partner in this. They've got some other things they're dealing with Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So they did have a lot of very public partners, but those public partners got fires in their own yard to, to take care of. Yeah. Well, if they make a documentary and Alec Baldwin plays the CEO of Arion, I am I'm in. You're in. I'm in. Probably would not be as dramatic, but that was highly entertaining. I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, uh, the report from Engadget said that you know aircraft design is expensive, and the pandemic created concerns over how long it would take for air travel to bounce back, and what travel might look like as people are you know remote and hybrid work mm-hmm. uh, is becoming more permanent. But according to the people that I've been talking to in the industry, most are eager to get back on the road, and many didn't stop. So. I don't know. I feel like at least business travel, the bounce back is going to happen quicker. Maybe not recreational travel, but maybe that's just thinking optimistically. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, then this is very specialized business travel. This is like mm-hmm. business class airplane. It's going to be expensive to fly it because it's supersonic and boomless, like super quiet, right? Right. So I can't imagine that's cheap. Our company is going to want to pony up for just 
you know, every salesperson to be taking this plane. I don't know. I think people are going to cut back. Yeah. I mean, I see that a lot anecdotally of companies saying like, this is the new normal. We're going to try to use Zoom when we can. It's working for us now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's still going to be some non-negotiable airline travel, but I really don't think it's going to come back the way it did before. I mean, yeah. I've been wrong <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, Jeff, what, what are your thoughts on it? Um, are people going to travel again the way we're used to, or is it over? I don't know. I think there's a couple different dynamics here. I mean, we've traveled enough for work that if we can drive someplace, we do it. Yeah. Because it's just it's the mm-hmm. hassle. Yeah. And now you you know you guys have gotten smaller kids. I know when my kids were small, I was double down on that. I mean, I would rather deal with them in a car than than a plane. Mm-hmm. As they've gotten older, that's different. But. I think you know we're we're on the cusp of Memorial Day weekend, and the news this morning was a ton of people flying, huge flight numbers, the most in like a year and a half, basically since the the pandemic started. So it will, but I don't think it's going to come back in the same way because just like e-commerce has affected retail, I think people's behaviors have been adjusted in a way that they will avoid a place like an airport, especially if the prices go up, mm-hmm. especially if it's more crowded. And especially if they just have any lingering thoughts or doubts about being that close to that many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, from a business perspective, we've figured out ways to, to still be very effective in working with people without going to their front door or hitting a trade show. Mm-hmm. True. So I think it's going to be a lot of personal preferences. But overall, yeah, I think it'll definitely have an impact. I'm just disappointed to see a supersonic plane maker go under. I know there are still companies out there like Boom Supersonic. Yeah. Just because the work they're doing, while now is very expensive, will have incredible returns down the road. And we will have to travel at some point again. And if we could do it in half the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm down. No, I'm into that. I mean, international travel that takes half the time. Mm -hmm. That's half the scotch. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so maybe I'm not on board. <laughs> it just means I have to drink twice as much before I get to the airport. <laughs> Moving on to In Case You Missed It. Uh, Jeff, what is your In Case You Missed It this week? So we ran a story called the headline, Navy Vows New Course After Ship Design Maintenance Problems. And this one caught my attention for a couple reasons. As a former Army guy, anytime we can have something negative about the Navy, that, that that's all right. <laughs> that's um, totally what I thought when I saw you picked um, it. Yeah, but the other thing I thought was really interesting was actually the, the Naval authorities that came on. They were very transparent, which you don't see a lot in these situations. Usually they're touting more of the things they want to do and they will do, as opposed to the fact that there are some very real shortcomings. In terms of the, um, the development and actual production of a lot of these ships that they're looking for, also very transparent, and this has been going on for a while in terms of why they need different types of boats. Mm-hmm. Um, with things shifting in, in the Pacific in terms of being more concerned about China, more concerned about Russia, they need a different type of vessel to get where they want to go and to deal with a lot of these different types of threats. And in talking about the issues that they've had in terms of not only developing new products, new boats to put out there, but also just maintaining what they have. Mm-hmm. And I think the dynamic that, that they've been caught up in is it's not like a new Jeep. <laughs> yeah. It's you've got infrastructure that's floating on the water. Mm-hmm. So anytime there's any type of upgrade from a technological perspective, a weapons perspective, you have to figure a way to tack that onto a thirty year old boat and make it work. And mm-hmm. you've got a lot of people, thousands of, of sailors to take care of on that vessel as well. So the Navy has a very unique problem. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the number of boats also affects the number of, of troops that they need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, number of sailors. So it's affected their recruiting a little bit as well. Um, the Navy was the only branch of the military that actually had lower recruiting numbers over the last year. Really? They still really? met their goals, but they 
said they wanted fewer than the year before. Mm. So okay. So I think it's it huh. has a couple of different dynamics here, and I think just the transparency of it was what really surprised me. It was very refreshing, mm-hmm. and it was probably very much needed, so that the folks who um, are in charge of appropriating funds to make these things happen are looking more closely at what we need to do, because the Navy will obviously play a key role if we are looking at our biggest threats from a defense perspective coming in the Pacific. Uh, in the name of transparency, can you share uh, the title that you earmarked this uh, story under? Um, let me look for the exact verbiage. I believe it was something <clears throat> along the lines of, basically, the Navy kind of sucks right now. I bet that just feels good for you to say, Red. <laughs> I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> uh, no, Anna, I'm, uh, I'm not very familiar with uh, the Navy, but uh, what was your take on the story? Uh, the thing that stood out the most, and it actually made me feel kind of bad for the Navy, was <laughs> that picture with all the rust on the ship, and oh, they yeah. took a whole bunch of guff. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to think of the right word. Yeah. That wasn't going to get bleeped out. Um, yeah. Shade. Shade. Mm-hmm. A lot of for Navy that, shade. Yeah, a lot of shade for that <laughs> rust. And you just think, like, man, anytime you have aging equipment. Like think of all the facilities that have aging equipment that's not that attractive and it's not on center stage to, to be like a national embarrassment. It just, <laughs> like those poor maintenance guys there are just like, oh, another thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to do it today. <laughs> we couldn't buff that out first, guys. I know. Um, Anna, what was your In Case You Missed It this week? Yeah, so um, to me, one of the most interesting stories that I saw this week was um, the story about Exxon Mobil's board. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being called a landmark scenario. So an activist hedge fund has successfully facilitated the ousting of two, possibly three, um, of Exxon's board members against the will of the company. Mm-hmm. Because investors are saying that Exxon isn't doing enough to address climate change. Um, Exxon has said that they have a plan in place, that they're working on it, and this hedge fund leading the charge is called engine number one. Basically, they're like, it's not fast enough. Your slate of directors are not equipped to make this happen. Mm-hmm. So they proposed a few new candidates, and a few were actually voted in. And this is largely unprecedented, especially in the big oil realm. Mm-hmm. The reactions have been mixed as to what this means. Like Some are alleging that this will actually do little to change uh, the will of the majority of the remaining Exxon board members. It's like a 12-member board. So, um, But there's a lot of voices out there who are saying look at the success of this, we will begin to see growing pressure from investors to push companies maybe a bit faster and harder than they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was an interesting development, and I wonder what the ramifications will be for the future for both Exxon and other public companies, because I think you know a lot of people were really surprised that this was successful. I mean, talk about surprised. When I read that Exxon to lose at least two board members uh, in Climate Fight, I certainly didn't think that the ones that were losing were, you know, or that they were gaining were pro-climate. I, was, mm-hmm. I figured they were, you know, Jeff, I was figuring that uh, they were given some uh, climate change loudmouths the boot. <laughs> climate change loudmouths. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's so hard to not Is curse. that what you call me behind my back? <laughs> you climate change loudmouth liberal? No. <laughs> I just... Yeah. Keep, keep going. No, no, no. no the hole's already deep enough. Don't keep going. <laughs> well, it was... Uh, it was no. Wow. Man. Evil laugh included. Say, yeah, right. um, yeah, and this came on the heels of another story we ran where, according to the Netherlands, actually um, 
ruled in favor of some activist groups against um, Shell, mm -hmm. um, where they basically said, no, you, you need a more concrete plan. And they've ordered them to cut emissions, but I think it was like almost 50%, 45% by like 2030 or something. So a lot of these groups are definitely gaining ground. Now, Shell can appeal because this was a court ruling. It's not as dramatic, I don't think, as, as these board members basically getting the boot because they weren't being strong enough advocates for environmental regulation. So it does. It really says a lot in terms of the pressure that these activists can, can put on these individuals. There's getting more people who are more prominent and, quite honestly, to be honest, have the funds and the money mm -hmm. to get enough influence in these companies to make them really change. The one thing that I thought was interesting, and, and just going back to the Shell case, is the problem wasn't that Shell didn't have a plan. It's that it wasn't a concrete plan. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's a big positive here. Don't just, don't just say, yeah, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, show us how you're going to do it. And I think a lot of these groups will be a lot more, I don't know if patient is the right word, but more accommodating or, or saying, well, we're part of this. We're working together because we're seeing what your plan is. This probably won't work, mm -hmm. but we can help you with these things. And if you're going to really do this and do it right, it's not necessarily about hitting a goal by 2030. It's about making sure you're doing it right going forward once mm -hmm. that plan is in place. Yeah. So it is, it is good in that respect, I think, to see more pressure being placed on these companies to develop real plans yeah. and not just promotional campaigns. Right. And I think it sort of speaks to the fact, too, that this isn't just like an issue for tree huggers anymore. There's an actual economic impetus for these changes to occur because no one can sell a product or in, no one's going to invest in the stock market if we're all dead. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I mean, we need to figure it out. It's true, though. I mean, yeah. like the well, world is made up of consumers. All these industries are struggling against the impacts of climate change now, you know? Even just from a more pragmatic perspective, though, all the regulations are getting tighter. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in spec, you can't do what you need to do. You're not making money. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, or like how much profits are impacted by fines and things like yeah. regulatory issues that are going to come up and hit these companies back potentially yeah. sooner rather than later. I mean, they have to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, for my story this week, I, uh, I went with this new series that we're working on, the Quantum Apocalypse and the Quantum Computing Series, because uh, I wanted to end it with a real barn burner. Um, but it basically it posed the question, is the quantum apocalypse a hoax? And I thought maybe because I don't know what that is, but it sounds <laughs> dire. It sounds like a hoax. It sounds bad, yeah. So I tried to break it up in this five-part series that I'm doing with Alan Grau. He's the VP of IoT and Embedded Solutions with Sectigo. But basically how it works is quantum computing is the combination of quantum physics being used with computing and uh, with computer technology. In just a few years, we will have the, it will have the tremendous potential to solve problems faster than traditional computers ever could have worked. So, for example, in the next five years, quantum computers will break codes that have taken lifetimes to crack, that would have taken lifetimes to crack with current technology, and it's going to solve them in a matter of days, if not hours. And Grau's point was that some industrial manufacturers are taking the necessary precautions to protect data and investing more heavily in security, and others are not. Mm -hmm. A lot of that split has been voiced on our website because some people say that it's like a lot of Y2K sort of smoke. And, uh, you know, some people are more dire saying that, you know, this could wind us putting us back in the 1980s where everything is done by phone, fax and FedEx. And I mean, other than fax and FedEx, I mean, I wouldn't mind going back. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I just found it to be a really interesting story on uh, something that I didn't really understand. And I don't think that a lot of manufacturers understand because there are a lot of sort of uh, grouse point was that there are a lot of sort of um, for lack of a 
term hackers out there that are recording data now that mm-hmm. can't be hacked and will be will use quantum computing to hack it in the future. Sure, yeah. And the other point that's really cool with this series, not cool, devastating, but um, part of this was, uh, part of the story was, uh, you remember that water plant that we talked about that got mm-hmm. hacked and... Um, they almost poisoned. Yeah, they tried but, to poison yeah. an entire town. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says that uh, this could cause a lot more of that, you know, just because uh, a lot of the security is already very vulnerable and this is going to make it all that much easier to break it. And uh, so I found the conversations with him fascinating. And it seems to be, a, to, in my opinion, a real problem that needs addressing. Some manufacturers are, others aren't. And uh, some, think, some think it's a hoax. So does he <laughs> contend that we should be adding like some sort of regulatory framework around this like they are proposing to do with AI, for example? He's not not regulatory framework. He's talking more about like what individual manufacturers can do to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that uh, he. I know that he does sit on different boards that want to uh, have more regulation over that. Um, and the I, uh, his point is how to keep up with um, the criminal element, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I know that he does work on both aspects of it. Um, but he's trying to get manufacturers to look at how their individual devices on the plant floor are talking to each other and mm-hmm. how they could be vulnerable going forward very soon, a lot sooner than people think. And a lot of that stuff is already super vulnerable, yeah. Well, and, uh, you even the term you hear quantum computing, and it sounds futuristic, so it seems further down the line than like five years. I know? picture the giant computers in, is it Superman 3 or Superman 2? I, Anyone? I mean, I'm not. The giant not, computer room? No. That's, I mean, you could pick a lot of references for that. Yeah. Um, is this, the one, this is the one with Richard Pryor. That's Superman 3. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's the best one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unequivocally. I won't. I don't know. I don't. I will not argue this. I'm not taking comments on this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, Somebody's feeling feisty after yeah, being gone for a week. Yeah, right. Uh, our poor taste in movies aside. Um, no. Um, kudos to you and Alan. This is great. This yeah. is a really good series. I'd highly recommend folks checking this out because this is something I didn't have a great understanding of. Mm-hmm. You guys do a great job of breaking this down so that it's it's not less complex, but it's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is really good stuff. I think what this brings up a little bit too is one of the things we've we've talked to people about is where does the greater security concern lie? The microprocessor manufacturer who's put who provides that or the person who builds the computer. Mm-hmm. Who's more in charge of, of security? Because you can't have enough right now. True. I don't think this is a tomorrow problem. This is a now problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking of um, another better movie, um, <laughs> Live Free or Die Hard, right? I mean, oh, no. Into everything. Oh, man, didn't. we're going down a terrible <laughs> sequel wormhole. Yeah, um, I live Police Academy 9, too. No. <laughs> Oof. I don't even know. Um, but no, I, I, I don't think it's that far out there. I think this is a now thing. Mm-hmm. And, um no, this is a uh, good stuff. No, I just uh, and you actually raise a good point where it's not who is it who's responsible for the security. It's everyone's responsible for making it more secure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't I don't know. I think sometimes we wind up on our own personal islands, and you feel like that island is secure, and so you don't really worry about anything else. There's definitely a head in the sand type of approach that's real easy to take with this stuff because mm-hmm. if you. Like, I'm not going to claim to completely understand this. So it's a lot easier to be like, well, they've got to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's Apple. <laughs> yeah. How, how could somebody hack into this? Yeah. Well, it's Apple. No. So, so in, you, in that same, like, vein, when it goes bad, you could be like, I can't believe Apple didn't have this. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it to the pros. 
All right, moving on to our final thoughts. Uh, Anna, what's your final thought this week? Well, I missed the podcast a little last week Mm -hmm. when I was sitting lakeside and popping a straw in my Capra Sun. (laughs) 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 Ah! (laughs) But um, I hope you enjoyed guest star Andy Zoll, but not too much because I'm going to be here most of the time. No, it was. Uh, it's great to have you back, and um, it really, it's been a long time since I've seen Andy. So it was good to, you know, like the first time seeing him was, hey, we're gonna record it too. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't. Uh, did you catch it? Did you catch his uh, his interesting uh, perspective on the construction workers with the autonomous car? <laughs> that was my favorite part, actually, the <laughs> podcast, because he was so right on the money. Because I was just thinking, like, what a weird situation. But I didn't really until he articulated it. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite consider like that was the worst part is that poor construction worker moving those cones, and then the the car's like, mm. and it's. <laughs> Face. The man. Probably a million degrees. Yeah. yeah. Manning the cones. Um, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? I am actually going to ask our listeners for some help mm-hmm. because I, during the uh, the pandemic, I've sampled, I think, every single microcraft brewery like in my grocery store. Oh. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has some good thoughts, suggestions on uh, a local brew or something that um, – can get my hands on. I'm looking for something different to try. So you're saying that you drank all the beer in Wisconsin? Yes. Okay. So other than your we're out uh, of beer, your cry for help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you try Ale Asylum's F COVID beer? Yes. Was that any good? Um. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was good. It's a little bit. Um, it's not. I don't know. It's it's a little bit darker, I guess, than, oh, okay. than what I would usually go for. But it was good. Yeah. What are you normally into? I like ambers. Yeah. Okay. Send your Amber recommendations to Jeff. One at a time, though. Free T-shirt from oh. whoever has the best suggestion. Ooh, that's right. That's a... Just keep shipping out those IEN T-shirts. Good deal. Um, my, my final thought this week is I just hope everyone had a good holiday weekend. Uh, you know, love your family as long as it's warranted, because sometimes it's not. And... <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're making lots of friends. And also, make sure you know the room before you come in hot, uh, because we're doing some remodeling in the office. And uh, that's why we're in this rogue office space upstairs. But uh, so the inspectors came the other day and clearly thought no one else was in the office other than the, uh, the uh, foreman. Yeah. And he just walks up to the foreman. Foreman's like, how you doing today? He's just like, ah, I just had to really hand this guy's ass at this other job because this conduit was all messed up and just was really laying into him, like setting the tone. I'm the boss man. And I just blasted laughing because it was the most you know hard flex i've seen in a long time <laughs> and he just turns around like shaking and i'm like oh i got you i just i wish i recorded We're it friends. so yeah just check the room before you come in hot that's all i'm saying <laughs> good I mean, advice right these electricians got enough of trouble as it is uh anyway please make sure to like subscribe and share the podcast and to email the podcast you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also do us a favor by subscribing to our newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast first. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.